Hey there, my whizzes. Welcome to episode 65 and to season six of the Food Biz Whiz podcast. In today's episode, you guessed it, we are going to do a rapid fire style Q&A. It's starting to become a tradition to kick off a new season with this style of episode, and I am here for it. It seems like you guys really like it too, so let's get right into it. Today, we're going to talk about promotional pricing, UPCs, brokers and distributors, co-packers, and buyer follow-up. So let's do this. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. Hey, before we jump in, I want to make sure that you've grabbed my free retail roadmap, a workbook that outlines my nine steps to building a brand that flies off the shelf. If you're a producer of a packaged product in the food industry, you are going to want this. I'll add it to today's show notes, so make sure you check out that PDF when you're done listening. Thanks. All right, Wizzes, we have a lot to cover today as we head into season six. I am really looking forward to this upcoming season. We have some great guests lined up. I've got Luisa Alberto, who will join us next week to talk about personal and biz financials. My friend Summer is educating us about compliant marketing copy for herbal supplement brands. I'll be doing some more live on-air wholesale coaching, and we're going to talk through goal setting for 2021, plus a few more fun surprises along the way. Okay, back to today's show. Thank you for those of you who submitted questions in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group for today's episode. If you are not in there, get to it. You can find the link to our Facebook group directly in the show notes. It is a great community of about 1,400 food biz owners coming together to share and connect. For those of you who haven't listened to a rapid fire episode yet, you are in for a treat. Typically on the podcast, I speak on a singular subject, but in these shows, I take a handful of listener-submitted questions, giving a few minutes of advice on each topic. It's kind of like a teeny tiny version of what we do in Retail Ready, except as a student, you get to get on video or unmute yourself on our coaching calls ask your question live, and then get coaching back and forth instead of my one-sided answer like I'm doing here. Nevertheless, if you like this style episode, you're going to have to go back and catch my previous rapid fire shows, episodes 13, 24, and 46. And again, I am going to link them for you in the show notes. On to our first question. What do I do if the buyer isn't passing along my promotional price to the customers? Okay, so I am cheating a little bit here (laughs) because this was a question in our Retail Ready student group, but it was such a good one with a big light bulb moment that I wanted to share it on air. A Retail Ready student who works with UNFI, big distributor, walked into her local store and saw her products on the shelf only to realize that the promotion that she was running through her distributor was not reflected on the pricing on the shelf. I mean, what the heck, right? So she promptly came into Retail Ready and she asked like what the deal was and if other brands had experienced this and what to do about it, how to make that buyer pass along her promotion price. 
So sure enough, a whole bunch of you raised your hands and said, yes, this is common. Yes, this has happened to you, especially with co-ops. And basically, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Obviously, when you hear this this news, you might be bummed, right? I mean, after all, like, why are you doing promotions if it isn't to drive trial and to get people to take a chance on your product? Well, here is where I put on my grocery buyer hat, and I've got two things to say to you. First, it comes down to communication and expectations on where those promo dollars are going. So if you are working directly with stores, you want to clarify this with the buyer when you set up your promotions. You can say outright that you want to do a promotion so that the discount gets passed along to the consumer. No big deal. If you are going through a broker or a distributor, you have that same conversation. Where does the discount end up? Of course, in this situation, you have to trust that the broker or distributor is passing along that info to the store and then holding them to it. But at the end of the day, it's all about trust in those relationships. You guys know this. But if you haven't set those expectations or if your buyer or broker or distributor can't make that promise... This is where you need to reframe your thinking. And this is the light bulb moment. I know that you are frustrated that the shopper isn't getting the sale, but your friendly grocery buyer, that's me, (laughs) is going to tell you that this is your opportunity to recognize that you are doing a favor for your retail accounts here. So remember that grocery buyer or whatever category you're in is your consumer. We think so much about the shopper being our end goal, but the buyer is your primary consumer. In wholesale, if you don't have that buyer's buy-in, you don't have that account. By passing along a promo that the buyer gets to keep at the store level, you are helping them boost their margin in your category. That is a huge win that makes the buyer happy. So your promotion is not lost. It's just going to the buyer rather than to the shopper. And frankly, that's okay every once in a while. Okay, got it? Hope that helps you reframe your thinking there so it doesn't feel like so much of a waste. Okay, next question. (laughs) I like this one. Do I really need UPCs? A new store said that I don't. Okay, so here's the deal. A UPC, that is universal product code or that little barcode that's on your packaging and scans at the cash register, is important to have, even if a store says you don't need it. And I'll tell you why in a second. So that UPC helps retail stores for several reasons. First off, it allows your product to accurately scan at the cash register. That UPC is linked to your product in the store's database. So when it scans, it automatically pulls up the accurate price for the shopper. If you don't have a UPC, the cashier needs to either manually enter the price or manually look up your product in their system. This is not only slow, which is particularly annoying if you're in a busy store who typically has a line, but it also leads to user error and shoppers being charged the incorrect price or for the wrong item. I have seen this a lot. (laughs) Secondly, the UPC helps the store keep track of sales and inventory. A buyer can run reports and see how much of each product is sold if it's tracked with a UPC, as well as how much inventory they have on hand if they have electronic inventory set up for their store. If you don't have a UPC, it's challenging for the store to track your sales, which often leads to out of stock, 
out of stocks, missed reorders, and overlooking you when they do category reviews. None of those things are good for your brand. (laughs) Now, sometimes a store will create UPCs for you and print them out on their own label makers. I used to do this for smaller brands all the time when I was a buyer. I hated it, but I did it. And we had a huge file folder with stickers that my grocery team would use to label products when they came in without codes. This is time consuming and it is really frustrating for the store staff to take on, even if they say that they'll happily do it for you. (laughs) And it's one more reason why a buyer might say no to you in the first place or decide to discontinue you because you're a bit high maintenance of a vendor. It also leads to user error. We would find things misstickered all the time. And there is nothing more frustrating (laughs) from the buyer's perspective than realizing that you have been ringing up your $15 jar of strawberry jam as a bag of $4 chips instead. Again, not good. And finally, on the topic of UPCs, I know you're going to ask me this. <laughs> Where do you buy UPCs? So if you're in the US, you want to get yours from GS1. That is the only website that I recommend. And I do not recommend buying recycled UPCs from smaller websites. You'll find those. They're like cheapo UPCs. If you do, you, you'll, you won't be allowed to use those recycled UPCs with larger retailers or with Amazon. And frankly, you're going to end up wasting your money because you'll have to reprint your packaging and repurchase UPCs down the line once you get to that stage. So do it correctly through GS1 from the very beginning. And again, I'll link GS1 in our show notes for you. All right. Next question. Should I offer guaranteed sales? I like this question too. You guys are, you guys are giving me good questions. <laughs> so simply put, offering guaranteed sales means that you will buy your product back from the store if it doesn't have, if it doesn't sell in an agreed upon amount of time. So this is most common with brands who have a shorter shelf life, like a fresh pressed juice company who has maybe a few days to sell your product or a, I don't know, a sliced bread company who has a week to sell loaves or a truffle company who has a 14 day shelf life, right? So I'm going to stop here and I'm going to say that If you make something that is totally shelf stable, like, I don't know, maple syrup or hot sauce or almond butter, there is no reason to offer guaranteed sales. Do not do it. (laughs) If your retail outlet, say, um, buys your, purchases your minimum order, maybe three cases, and they can't sell three cases of your product before it expires, then they're clearly the wrong venue for your brand in the first place. So offering guaranteed sales is a great way to show a buyer that you stand behind your brand and that you trust that it's going to do well at their store. It gives that buyer more confidence in bringing in your short shelf life product, knowing that they're not going to take the hit to their margin if it doesn't sell. However, I've got a disclaimer for you. I have two very important tips for setting up guaranteed sales. First one is, when you agree to do it, you should negotiate a limited time period that you will buy back from the store. So this will probably be 30 to 90 days, depending on what you're comfortable with, because you don't want to be in year two selling at a store still doing guaranteed sales, okay? 
And then secondly, the second tip is that you need to set the expectation with the buyer that you can override their orders. (laughs) So say, for example, that a new buyer places an order for 36 loaves of your bread, which again, we said has a one week shelf life, just because they know that you're going to buy it back, right? If you've been tracking their sales and you know that they only ever sell half of that, say 18 loaves a week, then you need to have the power to modify their order and protect yourself from so many buybacks. All right. Okay. So that's guaranteed sales. You should consider it absolutely if you have a product that has a short shelf life. It's a really great way to help prove that you are committed to your brand and that you are there to support the buyer as well. Before we keep going, let's stop here. Let's take a quick break. And I'm going to be back in a moment to talk about brokers, distributors, and co-packers. Hang tight. Instead of having a sponsor for today's episode, I want to give you a freebie, my retail roadmap. This roadmap is essential for anyone launching or growing a packaged food product, as it clearly outlines the difference between creating a product line that flies off the retail shelf First one that just sits there. Find my free retail roadmap linked in today's show notes. You are going to love it. We are back. This next one is a fun question, and I am going to commend this person for asking it. They had the disclaimer that it was a silly question or a stupid question, and I want to emphasize that there are no stupid questions. As we say in Retail Ready, if you have this question, I can bet that somebody else has this question as well. So... Thank you for asking. This brand founder says, okay, I'm quoting. Okay, Allie, since you're so good at breaking down big topics into understandable bites, thank you very much for that compliment. Can you tell me once and for all, what is the difference between a broker and a distributor? Okay, so there is a lot of nuance in what brokers and distributors do, but here is the simple answer on the main differences. A broker sells your product. They broker the sale of your product and a distributor gets your product to the store. They distribute your goods. A broker is essentially a hired sales rep for your company. They are either an independent person or a company who sells your product directly to wholesale accounts. They open new wholesale accounts for you and they sell into existing wholesale accounts. So they typically work on commission. You know, you're going to pay them more the more they sell, which is great. And they represent, they typically represent multiple product lines besides just your own. So the key thing to know about brokers is that they don't hold any inventory of your product and you still warehouse and own your own inventory. So you need to have your own storage. So if you make a canned pasta sauce and you had a broker, they may get you into new stores and handle the order ordering and the invoicing, but you would still be responsible for shipping or delivering your product to that store. Okay. So you, you, the founder are going to connect and communicate directly with the broker, not with the store. A 
a distributor, excuse me, is similar to a broker, but the big difference is that they warehouse and they own the inventory from the brands that they represent. And they therefore handle all of the ordering and the delivery logistics for your brand. So in this case, you would sell your pasta sauce directly to the distributor, probably by the half pallet or the pallet, who would store it in their warehouse and they would sell it directly to the store. Once you sell it to the distributor, you are hands off. In most cases, you don't even know what stores the distributor is selling it to and they don't have to tell you that information, which can be quite frustrating. (laughs) We could do a whole other episode on that. So why choose one over another? It is important to realize that distributors do not act as a stand-in for a sales rep. They typically carry hundreds of brands, thousands of brands even, and they can't give each product line individual attention, even if they say they can. They are going to promise you that they do sales for you, and I will promise you that they do not. (laughs) So you would generally pick up a broker if you don't have the capacity or talent to do sales, but can still handle, handle the storage and the delivery logistics for your products. So you might start with a broker if you're looking to penetrate into a new region or if you don't have contacts there, right? So alternatively, you would typically pick up distribution if you have the capacity and enthusiasm to still do sales and pitch to new wholesale accounts, but you need help with the ordering, warehousing, storage, and delivery logistics of getting your physical products to those accounts or further afield. So like I said, there are lots of, there's lots of nuance when it comes to picking a broker versus a distributor. And above all, you want that relationship to be based on trust and transparency. You need to know what you're getting out of that relationship and frankly, how much you're paying for it. (laughs) We've got a really great episode on brokers and distributors with Daniel Morrison of Green Spoon Sales, one of my favorite brokers that I'm going to link for you guys in the show notes if you want to hear more on that topic. All right, we've got two questions left. First up, how do I find a co-packer? This is an age-old question. My favorite source for finding co-packers is using the Partner Slate database. You can sign up. It's just at partnerslate.com. You can pay a monthly fee and you can search their really robust network of co-packers, filtering things like by things like type of ingredient or region or capacity. I have a promo code that you guys are welcome to use. It's AllisonBall25, and that will give you 25% off your search. So that's not an affiliate link, but it's just a code that they generously shared with our community. So again, find the link to partnerslate.com and my promo code in my show notes. I feel like I'm linking a lot of things in the show notes in today's episode, but I've got a lot of resources for you today. So our last question of the day is, Allie, (laughs) how many times should I follow up with buyers? This question is a good one. And my simple answer is more than you are doing right now. (laughs) I am laughing as I say this because it's true. Every single brand that comes into Retail Ready has that aha moment of finally understanding why they have to continue following up with a buyer and exactly what to say when they get to follow up number five or six or seven. That's right. Don't stop following up until you get a hard no. And even then, there are ways to turn that no into a yes. 
I'm not kidding when I say that you should expect to follow up for about six months before a buyer places a first order. Of course, our goal is to make it happen a lot faster than that, and it often does for my retail-ready students, but I like to be realistic, especially when we're talking about the bigger chain accounts. Okay, there we have it. Another rapid-fire episode on the books. Do you guys like these episodes? I want to know. So of course, if you have something that you would like me to address on air in the future, come and join us in the Food Biz Wiz Facebook group where I source my listener questions. As always, thank you for listening and cheering me on with this podcast as we get into season six. Holy cow. So next week's show, like I said, is with Luisa Alberto, and it's going to be a good one. We are talking about personal and business financials and how to set up a strong foundation so that you can actually stay afloat. So you are going to love her just as much as I do. So check back next week, same time, same place. Until then, have a good one and stay busy. Thank you for listening to Food Biz Wiz, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a beat. Hungry for more? Check out www.foodbizwiz.com. That's food, B-I-Z-W-I-Z.com for detailed show notes from all episodes. Thanks again for tuning in and stay busy.